Hello, and welcome again to the Conservative Historian Podcast. This podcast is a little bit different. What I wanted to do was offer a free excerpt from our Conservative Historian book called Collected Works. So this is going to be one of those works. And that book is available on Amazon in either Kindle or hardcover format. This is an excerpt from an essay within the book titled On History. And here is that excerpt. Herodotus, the reputed father of history, well, at least from a Western perspective, focused his sixth and seventh books on the invasion of Greece by Xerxes and his Persian hordes. In his 1890 translation of The Histories, G.C. Macaulay states, quote, For what nation did not Xerxes lead out of Asia against Hellas? And what water was not exhausted, being drank by his host, except not for the great rivers? Unquote. Later, Herodotus claimed that contingents that composed this army were drawn from 46 nationalities. His estimates for the cavalry alone amounted to 80,000 horsemen, plus 20,000 men mounted on camels or chariots. The infantry, if we take Macaulay's or Herodotus's uh, estimates correctly, would have consisted of about uh, 1,700,000 soldiers. And for each combatant, there were at least, well, one non-combatant camp follower or supply assistant. In other words, Herodotus is telling us that there was a total of 3.4 million people invading Greece at that time. Given that the total population of the Achaemenid Empire is estimated this time at about 45 million, which is quite a migration, Herodotus was not just the father of history, he was simultaneously the father of using history to serve as the handmaiden to his political views. More massive Persian armies equated to greater glory for the eventual triumph of Greece. If the Greeks had adopted demoralized, despondent, ill-supplied, and outnumbered troops, the grandeur of the subsequent victory would have tarnished its luster. It would have also cut into the potential readership of his works. Herodotus was a historian who was going for a gasp, not a shrug, amongst his Grecian readers. The Roman general Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus, also known as Pompey the Great, brought the scholar Marcus Terentius Varro with him on campaign for use as essentially a tame historian. Gaius Julius Caesar did one better than Pompey himself by writing his historical counts and then sending them to the Senate and people of Rome as a serialized account of all of his exploits. John F. Kennedy kept Arthur Schlesinger Jr. around at Camelot in a role not dissimilar to what Varro was to Pompey. Barack Obama, who is overrated as an intellectual but underrated for his political cunning, made friendships with the likes of Doris Kearns Goodwin. During one interview between the two, Obama noted that it might be presumptuous if he amended a Lincoln quote, whereupon the writer of Team of Rivals then gushed, quote, amend away, Mr. President, unquote. If Miss Goodwin decides to write a biography of the 44th president, she may treat her subject with as much objectivity as Herodotus treated the Persians. Now, for much of U.S. history, the glory of the Republic was paramount. 
This orthodox school was invested in a young nation's success, especially in contrast to the old world. The greater the glory of the United States, the easier to knit the country together with a unified vision of greatness. And though produced to instruct citizens on their civics, these histories were not necessarily incorrect, just lacking in a fuller narrative. In other words, a fuller history of the United States itself. The United States was, and is, historically unique as a nation. America was not founded on geography, tribalism, religion, or even a political movement, but rather upon an ideal. Where these earlier histories came up short was the omission of information that delineates from the nation's glory. Some of the missing histories included content on slavery, labor issues with the country's industrialization, the secondary status of women, and even the interning of Japanese-American citizens during World War II. The omission of these negative aspects of American history led to the rise of the revisionist school. Writers such as Joseph Mathewson and John Kenneth Galbraith showed the underside of that national story. History should always be subject to revision as new information is discovered or interpreted. As Chris Carlton in 2018 article from the Mises Institute points out, quote, So why is revisionism so important to the discipline? As Mises explains in Theory and History, our knowledge of historical events is not and can never be perfect. Documentary evidence is always necessarily incomplete, and no historian is capable of acquiring all of the potentially relevant evidence that does exist. The best that historians can do is to try to uncover new evidence and re-examine old evidence informed by sound theory so new interpretations can be offered. Unquote. The challenge for the Orthodox school was not lack of evidence, but rather the aforementioned omission. Now, the revisionists in the United States and parts of Europe, even more than the Orthodox school, built a singular approach to history. The revisionists were less about a complete exploration of the past. Instead, they used, and still do, use history for the justification of a specific point of view. In his Recovering the Past, historian Forrest MacDonald says of these scholars, who were flourishing by the 1960s, quote, They came increasingly to believe that historians must justify their existence by pointing their research and writing to furthering of a present public policy that they regard as desirable, and to insist that historians can believe and behave in no other way. That conviction led them to view the past in terms of struggle between good people, whose goals are squared with what they regarded as desirable, and bad people, whose goals did not. Unquote. David Hackett Fisher, in his Historian's Fallacies, says of history, quote, History is, in short, a problem-solving discipline. A historian is someone, anyone really, who asks open-ended questions about past events and answers it with selected facts, which are arranged in the form of an explanatory paradigm, unquote. These questions of history can take many forms, from exploring what happened at the Battle of Issus with Alexander of Macedon, learning how early Chinese in the Tang Dynasty fed themselves, all the way to determining women's roles in the Progressive Era. At its purest form, it is actually diagnostics. Taking into account as many facts as possible and reporting. In some ways, a historian is a detective trying to ferret out the stories, 
the narratives of the fabric of human accomplishments. In her Practicing History, Barbara Tuchman states, quote, to find out what happened in history is enough at the outset without trying too soon to make sure of the why. I believe it is safer to leave out why alone until after one has not only gathered the facts, but arranged them into sequence. Unquote. Tuchman adds, quote, if the historian submits themselves to their material instead of opposing themselves onto their material, the material will ultimately speak to them and supply the answers, unquote. When future journalists are extolled to, quote, make a difference, unquote, that is not reporting. That is not trying to answer the question or seek the facts. Historians in today's academy respond very much to this ethos of making a difference. It is not about historical exploration, but about using history to justify their preconceived notions and affect public policy. The vast majority of historians today do not ask questions. They already know the answers. Complex issues, such as the nature of racism or the complexity around poverty, are reduced to political talking points. Other questions include whether health care is a right, or will human-made climate change be humankind's ruination? 21st century historians are not building paradigms. To them, those are already in place. Instead, they are searching out facts that fit their preconceptions. And when facts prove inconvenient, they bend reality. There is no record of a purely socialist nation delivering a first world economy. However, the answer is that Scandinavian countries, which are not truly socialist, are bent to appear so. The facts are provided after the event. And it is there that Fisher gets at the heart of the matter with his term by calling out historical selectivity. As Daniel Patrick Moynihan famously pointed out, quote, we are entitled to our own opinions, but not one's own facts, unquote. Yet what happens when there are so many facts, so much research that they can be retrofitted into a preordained ideological conclusion? This use of selected facts to build a preconceived narrative is where history exists today, in the academy, in secondary schools, on Amazon, and in Hollywood production scripts. We hope that you have enjoyed this uh, free excerpt from The Conservative Historian, a collected works. If you're interested in learning a little bit more of that content, we will be releasing more free excerpts, but if you want it all, all 200 pages worth. If you want the rest of this essay, all of the columns, all of the rankings, including our presidential rankings and the essays, then please go to Amazon and uh, purchase the book. Thank you very much for listening.